What's your favorite Christmas movie? Yeah, good, good. This is the correct answer. Obviously, it's the Muppet Christmas Carol. Obviously. And as Gonzo the Great, as Charles Dickens, opens the story with this dark, somber line, the Marleys were dead to begin with. As dead as a doornail. And later on, oh, thank you. Later on, as Scrooge goes home to bed and meets the ghosts of his old business partners, Gonzo repeats, Now once again, I must ask you to remember that the Marleys were dead and decaying in their graves. That one thing you must remember, or nothing that follows will seem wondrous. I've been working on that one. Thank you. Thank you. That's all I've prepared, actually. Um, but it takes a lot of practice, all right? But of course, the Easter story is much more wondrous again. Firstly, because it actually happened. And secondly, it wasn't a ghost of Jesus that the disciples met that day, but the same bodily present Jesus that they had watched be executed, who died, was buried, who rose from the dead, who ate food with his friends and showed them his crucifixion wounds to show that it really was him. He really did die. He really did rise from the dead. Each of the four gospel accounts in our Bibles, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell us the story of Jesus' trial, his death, and his rising from the dead, all focusing on slightly different aspects of what had happened, as you'd expect four different witness statements to do, and all capturing important perspectives of the wondrousness of the Son of God raised to life. This morning, we're going to read a section of Matthew's gospel account, so if you've got a Bible with you, a digital or a paper one, turn to Matthew 27, verse 50 with me. And as you do, my message for us this morning is, we don't stay dead. Jesus' rising from the dead was always part of God's rescue and reset pattern for us, or plan for us, I should say. And in Jesus' death and resurrection, God opened the way for us to receive new life from him. Jesse just effectively prayed the first half of my talk. It was great. Um, Jesus gave us the opportunity to put our old corrupted way of life to death and to be gifted in place of that a new life with a freedom and an intimacy with God that we were always made for but that sin had kept painfully out of reach. But now, thanks to what God has done for us at Easter, we don't stay dead. So, have Matthew 27, starting at verse 50 in front of us if you have. If not, don't worry, it'll be on the screen. Um, we're going to start, if you've got it in front of you or spotted already, we're going to start from Good Friday, the moment on the cross when Jesus died. And my friend Lewis is going to read that for us now. Why don't I get you a microphone, my friend? Thank you, I'll just grab that. Come, Holy Spirit. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. 
when the centurion and those uh, with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. And picking up again in chapter 28, verse 1, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. And now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, collapsed at his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Amen. Thank you so much, mate. Thank you. We don't stay dead. In fact, the reason why I wanted to start this morning by going back to Good Friday was this fascinating moment that, bafflingly, only Matthew's account records for us that in verse 53, a load of people who had known God in their lives were themselves raised to life at Jesus' resurrection and wandered around Jerusalem, presumably scaring the sandals off everyone they met. <laughs> Could you imagine it, though? Yeah, you were almost zombie-like, but, you know, but good. Verse 51 told us that the moment of Jesus' death, there was an earthquake which disturbed many graves and tombs. Now, that's unnerving enough. And then, verse 53, after Jesus' resurrection, those bodies were raised as well. I sort of picture it like an overflow of God's awesome power being poured out that morning. Like, hey, you have a little bit too. Hey, Miriam, some for you. Samuel, get some of this. Or like the enormity of God's holiness and power poured out in that moment caused some sort of bounce in the grave that Jesus' resurrection just sort of couldn't help but bring a whole load of other people full of God's presence up to wander around and celebrate it as well. There is huge holiness and power in that moment, kind of an overspill of wondrous goodness. And that little moment, that astonishing moment of that foretaste of resurrection is a signpost for all of us. It's a little assurance that, yes, Jesus did it, but it wasn't just for him. He really did lead the way for us. We don't stay dead. Now, by starting talking about resurrection and being raised to life with Jesus, naturally, our first thoughts will go to the future. After we've taken our last breaths on this earth, and God has then called time on this heaven and earth and installed the new heavens and new earth in its place. Resurrection, sure. But, of course, and for anyone who hasn't heard this already, 
God's offer of new life doesn't just begin then. We don't have to wait. I mean, yes, it'll be pretty amazing when that happens, but even though there's this full embrace of God, the full, unrestricted, veil-torn-back glory to enjoy in that moment, meeting and getting to know the risen and still-living Jesus can start from, well, now. In a way that turns our life upside down in the best possible way. Before we get to that physical resurrection, God asks us to begin a new life with him. But that ask and that change to a new life, again, as Jesse just prayed, I don't know if he read my script or was just really prophetic, that ask is a really stark one. It is a death and a resurrection within us. It's God asking us to be restored to him, to begin the work of restoring us to how he made us to be. So as this morning we look at what Easter means for us, and what on earth I mean by keeping on insisting that we don't stay dead, we're going to look at it in three parts. Firstly, God so, so lovingly invites us to come and die. To take the lives that we've lived without him and hand them over to be done away with and to get a fresh start. Secondly, God gives us new life in him and a fresh start. Free from sin, free from the things that held us down and separated us from him. And thirdly, we'll spend just a little bit of time looking at how we live that new life to the full with Jesus. We come and die. We're given new life, and we live it to the full. We don't stay dead. So firstly, God offers to put to death the lives that we were living without him. When Jesus was physically walking around before the events of Easter Sunday, he explained what it was to follow him. Now, Jesus opened the door wide, but he didn't set the bar low. Jesus was radically open in saying that anyone can follow him. He broke the national and cultural barriers of the day by saying anyone can follow him. But he made it clear that everyone would have to give their everything. Jesus wanted us to be eyes wide open to how all-encompassing, how costly it is to accept God's big reset on our lives. In Luke's gospel, you can turn there if you like, uh, it'll be on the screen as well. Luke's gospel, chapter 14, verses 25 to 35, we read, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He goes on, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you. <laughs> uh, this person, you know, they began 
and they couldn't finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Surprising? Jesus isn't giving out soft or easy invitations. I think we have to be ready for the fact that living with God back in control of our lives, as he designed us to be, but in a world that rejects God, that might cost us relationships with those closest to us. I think it will even cost us relationships with ourself. The hopes and fears that we have for our own lives, the promises we've made ourselves, they've all got to be submitted under, okay, Jesus is my God. What he says rules. Is this threatening? I feel like it is. If we think that we can have a relationship with God where we are the ones who are in charge, we fundamentally misunderstood who God is and who we are. That's why Jesus taught so clearly, so uncompromisingly, that we should count the cost of being his disciple. I mean, are there benefits? Of course, undoubtedly. And I promise you, it's the relationship we were made for and there's nothing better. But are there costs? Yeah. Our very lives are to be given up. Which is why, before Jesus went anywhere near being arrested, in verse 27, he said, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I mean, that's a stark invitation, isn't it? If you will walk with me, you carry your death with you every step. You no longer live. Maybe we don't talk about this enough. The Christian call, Jesus' invitation to any and all of us is, come and die. I mean, we often say a less in-your-face version of this as one of our regular sayings in the vineyard here. We say, Jesus invites us all to come as we are, which I believe is true. And he says to all of us, but don't stay as you are, which is kind of what we're reaching towards here. But Jesus is uncompromisingly upfront. To be my disciple, to follow me, is to live the way that I live, the way of sacrifice. I mean, if you look at how Jesus spent his life, that is, he had a limited amount of time, of energy, and he spent that serving those who his society rejected as unclean. He touched the lepers, healed them. He went to the Samaritans, the Samaritans of all people, to preach God's news to them, God's good news to them even. He even interrupted his own disciples' ego arguments and said, let me wash the muck off your feet. And then, of course, most of all, the cross itself. Fulfilling all the sacrifice that humanity owed to God, offering a sacrifice that he himself didn't owe at the cost of his own life. So if we're going to follow that, to follow Jesus is to say, my life is not my own anymore. I'm his. To be spent how he chooses. As John Wimber said, I'm loose change in his pocket 
to be spent how he chooses. I have died. It is a heart depth ask. Like I say, a wide open ask, but not a low bar. But I'm also convinced that this is God's kindest offer. It's God saying, you don't need to belong to this system anymore. You don't need to play by the rules of reaching for power or trusting in money, living the perfect Instagram life, of doing anything that follows this world's priorities anymore. There's a release in Jesus' invitation to lay down this life with him that frees us from the never-ending and never-satisfied demands of a world that seems more driven by anxiety than it does by joy. I mean, I think it's good news. And that's not the best of it. This freedom is not just a freedom from one broken system into a better system. The spiritual powers who are at work in this world aren't just an alternative to God that are less fulfilling. They're actually in active opposition to God. They're in a vicious rebellion that has taken us and the people we love captive and then brainwashed us into joining the fight. So Jesus saying, come and die, is Jesus setting us free from the deceptions that have enslaved us, that were using us rather than giving us life. In Colossians 1, Jesus is rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. That's the Son the Father loves. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Have you ever played a game for a little too long? You know, like a mobile game where um, they give you a little reward for playing every day or every few hours. Seen those things? Well, you get these little incentives that sort of keep you trapped in there, keeping coming back, and then they show you little adverts, or they charge a fee. No? A few nods from people? Yeah? Okay. They were using you. <laughs> Maybe you enjoyed playing for a while. Maybe it was life-giving. It was fun. It had a sense of adventure for a bit. But then maybe you found yourself going back, logging on, not for fun, but to meet that little requirement. And I think it's the same. In fact, actually, I think it's worse with social media. So have you ever had that momentary realization of, why am I playing this? Or why am I still scrolling? So like that, but on a whole life scale, this world has set up a system with many false gods for us to fear or to place our hopes in or to keep coming back to, not even necessarily sure why, all to distract us from the real God who loves us. And then the enemy dangles little achievements or requirements in front of us just to keep us hooked and trapped in. But it's poison. Bit by bit, these false gods confuse and corrupt us and our relationships. And through false promises, and worse, through the guilt of the harmful things that we've done that the enemy's world system told us we should do in the first place, through the guilt and the shame of those things, we are kept cowering in the rebellion against God. Confused, distracted, and mortally stained in sin, we find ourselves unable to lift our face and look at God, to come to him for help. Trapped. If that's right, if that is how the world is set up, then 
This is where Jesus' invitation to come and die, to pick up your cross and follow me, makes sense. Let me be really clear. This isn't punishment. This is the opposite of punishment. This is the new start that sees our complicitness in the rebellion removed from us forever. The sin stains on our souls that stubbornly stood between us and God are dealt with by that whole body being put to death. There's mercy in Jesus' stark challenge. Paul, again, wrote to the church in Rome, and he said, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And verses 5 to 7 go on to say that when we allow ourselves to be united to Jesus' death, our bodies, ruled by sin and rebellion, have been done away. We're no longer slaves to sin. Verse 10 tells us, the death Jesus died, he died to sin once and for all, and on our behalf. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves, people who call yourselves Christians, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Set free from our old lives, dead to that sin and system that entrapped us, and alive to God in a way that was impossible for us before because of Easter Sunday, because of Jesus. This is the joy of Easter. As one worship song puts it, oh, the wonderful cross, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. The mercy of Easter is that our old lives can be done away with and we don't stay dead. So on to point two. God raises us to new life with Jesus. Jesus himself called this new life that we're given after we bring our old one to him and come and die. This new life he called being born again. It's a new life from God with God. So, what does it look like? I think it looks like, well, at least these three things. Freedom from sin, freedom from the pressures of this world, and restored relationship with the God who loves you to death, and then to new life. So firstly, this new life with God looks like freedom from sin. This new life that Jesus offers us is a life that is free from guilt, free from the shame of our rebellions against God. No matter what our offenses against God and against each other have been, our new life has no record of wrongs against it. God has chosen it to be the case, that you and I can stand before him as sinless, perfectly obedient, and perfectly faithful children. Nothing gets to divide us from him. Nothing can call us unworthy of him. Nothing can accuse us. Our new lives in Jesus are as righteous as Jesus is himself because our very lives are united to his.
which is a gift. So come, stand tall, look your loving Heavenly Father in the face, chin up, shoulders back. There's no need for shame as you meet Father God. You are loved, and the new life he's given you owes no apologies to him. Second freedom this new life gives us is a freedom from the pressures of the world. So there are things that we actually need, like food to eat, like a roof over our heads. There's also stuff that we think we need, like stuff this world tells us we should have to be fulfilled. Maybe it's a huge income, a perfect relationship, some status or position to earn respect, or the latest thing to buy that will entertain us or give us peace, or both at the same time somehow. Those pressures, those nudges upon us, they get to be put to death. So actually, as our lives are not our own, it doesn't matter what status we have. As we're trusting a father to provide for us, it doesn't matter what our income is. As we're trusting God with our heart, he can sort out the relationships questions. Our lives become not our own. Our lives become lived to God. And so none of those things matter. And he says he'll take care of the things we need. Jesus tells us that instead of worrying about those things, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Look to Jesus and look to the stuff of Jesus. And all these things that we need will be given to you as well. That's a pretty good promise. Thirdly, that this new life gives us, and arguably most importantly, the thing we're given is restored relationship with God. This is freedom from sin, as we've said, but it's much more too. It's freedom for intimacy with God. God's gift to us is to know his love like a small child knows the love of doting parents. To know God here with us as we worship. To know God with you in your moments of joy and your moments of pain. God's gift of new life is a life that walks closely with him, that can feel the warmth of his light as we walk beside him and him with us. It is to feel alive again in his presence, especially in parts where we may have felt flattened or deaded before. If we felt crushed, I think God's gift of new life to us means that we don't stay dead. He can meet us there, and so often does. So on to my third point. Having said, come and die, having offered us a gift of new life, here's a question for us. How do we live this new life to the full? How do we say yes, opt in, stay there, and not drift off? At the beginning of this year, as we do every year, I shared with this church what I felt God was saying to Kingdom Vineyard for 2023. And the message from Jesus' teaching in John's Gospel, chapter 15, is that I'm pretty sure Jesus is inviting us to remain in me and to love one another. It's an invitation to make sure that if we are branches, that it's his tree we're growing from. His nutrients that we're receiving, 
his strength that holds us up. I think that Jesus is specifically saying to this church, be rooted in me. Instead of being swayed by the stuff you hear going on around you, whether it's the cries of crass commercials or the clamor of competing causes, be dead to that stuff and alive to me. Let me give you true life. Grow steadily more sensitive to me secretly speaking to you. Hear me whisper. Follow me and see me pour out my presence and bring in my kingdom to people and places who will be transformed by it. That's what I think Jesus is inviting us to do. The new life he offers us is one of fulfilling, intimate closeness with God. I'm not saying that tough things won't happen. That's not Jesus' promise either. But it's a different hand to hold as we walk through that stuff. It's a sense of life amid the pain of the world. Not being tossed back and forth like a ship that has no sense of anchor in a storm. Our new lives are from God, with God, and for God. We're no longer part of this world's rebellion against him anymore. The stuff of the old life is not welcome here. So where we have habits that are self-centered, ways that we see the world where anyone's opinion is held higher than what God says, any challenge to Jesus being the undisputed Lord of our lives, those moments are us reaching back to the ways of the world that he called us out from and said, didn't we put that to death? Which means living in intimacy with God means receiving his holiness, the gift of his holiness, and welcoming and living in his light. And I think that God is jealous for us, not envious. This isn't a negative thing. He passionately wants us with him and restored to him. He's jealous for us in that sense because he loves us. He wants us to be holy, to be with him, because it's good for us. So I suggest that we make sure that sin in our lives stays dead. I suggest we allow no other gods, no other things that demand that we bow down to them in our lives. Nothing that would challenge or threaten to eat away at the holiness that God wants for us and gifts to us. As a response to the wow of the love and the life that Jesus pours out to us, what I'm basically saying is, I see you, Lord, yes. What Easter means for us is that God gives us the opportunity to come and die to sin, to be done with it. To be dead to it, finished with things that might draw us away from him and his goodness. To make ourselves off limits to the claims that this world tries to make to, on us. And then, after giving us the gift of that death to this world, we don't stay dead. God gifts us new life from him. A life that's with him and for him. One of intimacy and purpose. And so I want to stay there. And I want each of us to stay there. To press into that new life with him. Resist the claws of this world that would seek to reclaim us. If that seems a wee bit challenging, it's in the context of the joy of an Easter Sunday. The reason why I want this 
yes, Lord, don't let us be distracted, is because I think the offer is too good to refuse or to dilute. There might be some of us who have never said, do you know what, Lord, I want some of that. Okay, yeah, I'm in. And I'm happy to let the things that have been claiming me die. If that's you, and you you want to say, yeah, I want that new start, Lord, then in a minute, when we offer a chance for people to pray with you, I'm going to invite you to come to the front and someone will come and ask you what you'd like prayer for and you can say, I want some of that. There might be some of us who've been, who've said that yes a long time ago and have maybe been half in, half out to, yes, Lord, I want some of that. But if you say, yeah, I want to to make that sense of, make that statement of yes, give that sense of, all right, Lord, there's an opportunity this morning. Maybe there are some things that we just know are half in, half out of the new life that Jesus offers us. If you'd like someone to pray with you about that, there'll be an opportunity. And maybe, maybe all of this was just way too heavy. And you just want to say, Lord, can I experience your loving touch this morning? If that's you, we would love to pray for you as well. Why don't you stand and we'll pray. going to take a moment, invite God to come and meet us where we are. Just invite you, if there's something you want to say to the Lord in the silence of your own heart, or something you want to ask him to talk to you about, now's a great moment. Would you come and meet us, Lord, however each of us needs to meet you this morning? Lord, for those of us who just need to know your arms around us, come and show us you love us. For those of us who need the injection of your life, come and give us new life. For any of us who need to bring things of our lives to be put to death, to say, I want that no more, I want Jesus instead. Lord, come and do that business with us, please.